welcome to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on indigenous food news and stories. I'm Andy Murphy. Due to poor Chinook salmon runs, the Yurok Tribe's annual salmon festival will go on without salmon this year. But the tribe is hopeful that pending dam removals on the Klamath River will restore this important food staple. In North Carolina, a Lumbee chef and bakery owner shares her kitchen space with other pastry entrepreneurs. We'll also check in with the U.S. Department of Agriculture about how they're working more closely with tribes. Join us after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. From homework to job applications, the value of high-speed internet access has only become more prevalent in the 21st century. Now the Biden administration is looking to plug some of the nation's biggest coverage gaps. South Dakota Public Broadcasting C.J. Keene reports. With rural and remote Americans often being behind the technological curve and the geographic reality of Native American reservations, high-speed internet has often been slow to reach every corner of the country. Pawi Rivera is the director of tribal affairs for the Biden administration. He explains the president's rationale in pushing for the near-billion-dollar investment. Access to high-speed internet is no longer a luxury. It's a necessity to fully participate in today's society. This second round of funding from the Tribal Broadband Connectivity Program will make approximately $980 million available for Native American, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian communities for deployment of Internet. Assistant Secretary of Commerce Alan Davidson says tribal entities have until January to apply for funding. These funds will support high-speed infrastructure deployment as well as use and adoption activities. Those activities will include affordable broadband programs, distance learning, telehealth, digital inclusion programs, and broadband adoption. Projections say this investment could bring new connections to nearly 150,000 households on tribal lands. Officials don't yet have a breakdown of state-by-state data. I'm CJ Keen. Indigenous chefs are racking up prestigious awards for their cooking, but that wasn't always the case, and there's still room to grow. Now these chefs are working to share their cuisine while highlighting their history. KUNC's Emma Vandenindy has more. Indigenous chef Sean Sherman says the absence of Native restaurants resulted from many wrongdoings by the federal government. Bison were killed at alarming rates. Federal boarding schools stripped Indigenous peoples of their culture. And forcing them onto resource-poor reservations put them in a systemic trap. He says they haven't had time to heal yet, let alone evolve. The more you dig into it, the more inequality you see and the more racist structures you can see that are still built into the system. Chef Andrea Murdoch wants to shed light on this through her cooking. She's made food for several fundraising dinners that focus on issues like missing and murdered Indigenous relatives and Indian boarding school trauma. Like, yes, I'm a chef, but I'm using that platform to bring awareness to cultural issues. This summer, she helped with Denver Eats, hosted by the American Indian College Fund. It raises tens of millions of dollars each year for Indigenous students to attend tribal colleges. Cheryl Crazybull, the College Fund CEO, loves hosting the event. Events like this, for me, are that opportunity for us to showcase the kinds of things that we as Native people contribute to society. The dinner portion featured Indigenous chefs preparing dishes with pre-colonial ingredients, like a hen of the woods mushroom soup or three sisters hors d'oeuvre. 
Ben Jacobs, the co-founder and chef of Tokabe American Indian Eatery in Denver, also cooked for the event. With each dish, he tries to tell a story and make food for people, not for a profit. The point is being able to provide people food that's meaningful and not worry about, at the end of the day, I'm only here to make money, because we're not. We're here to make impact. Murdoch wants to do the same. By cooking at events like this, she hopes to uplift the cuisine and causes of her community while inviting others into the discovery. Food is a common necessity, one of the few common necessities that everybody needs, no matter what, like we need it for survival. So why not have a conversation about where your food came from? For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets, or pillows around your baby. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular monthly feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy, and I'm from the Navajo Nation. Starting a sweet food business like a bakery is a lot different than starting a regular restaurant. Later in this hour, we'll hear from the Lumbee owner of the Little Blue Bakehouse in Raleigh, North Carolina, about what it takes to turn sugar into success while also making room for other pastry entrepreneurs. On the West Coast, the Yurok tribe will also go forward with their annual Klamath Fa uh, Salmon Festival without any salmon. That's because Chinook salmon runs are too low, something that's happening with increasing frequency. But the tribe has a lot to celebrate with the pending demolition of four dams along the river. Up first, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is creating a tribal advisory committee. The aim is to bring tribes in on decisions made on funding uh, and programming. The federal entity is also rolling out a pilot program that brings locally raised and processed bison products into the food distribution on Indian reservations, or the Commodity Foods Program. If you'd like to join our food news show, you're welcome to. Are there any native food sovereignty initiatives going on in your native community? Give us a call. Join us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Josiah Griffin. He's the program analysis for the USDA Office of Tribal Relations. He's Kanakama Oli. Welcome to the menu on uh, Native America Calling, Josiah. Thank you so much for having me. 
All right. You're the policy advisor. Sorry about that. Uh, so there's this uh, tribal advisory committee that's being, um, uh, I guess, built right now. Uh, tell us about this committee. So we all know that if USDA was built from the ground up with indigenous perspectives in mind, how we run our policies and programs today would likely look very different from what we currently see. And so USD is currently soliciting nominations for a new tribal advisory committee. Um, that is a body that will be able to uh, consistently engage the secretary and all of USDA um, programs and agencies on how we can better serve and support tribal needs and um, better meet our tr uh, trust and treaty responsibility. All so, right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so what is the significance of having uh, Native people weigh in on some of these decisions at the USDA? I mean, what, uh, um, how important is the USDA in uh, Native America? So USDA was particularly built with rural America in mind. And most tribal lands, as we know, reside in rural spaces. And so from agriculture financing, and a food labels or the commodities program, as we've discussed. Um, but USDA also has resources and financing that is available in infrastructure development and in housing. And so as we look at the importance of engaging Indian country, um, we first recognize our consultation responsibility in our government-to-government -government relationship. Um, but we're also consistently looking for opportunities to lift up tribal voices across the country, including through this new tribal advisory committee. All right. And um, this advisory committee, like who who are you uh, looking for? Like who would be the uh, prime candidate? So USDA has a number of advisory committees. And if you're familiar with any one of those, um, generally, we're able to accept nominations from people in their individual capacity. But Congress was very um, specific with us in terms of who we can who we can solicit nominations for for this new tribal advisory committee. And so, the 2018 Farm Bill identified that USD is able to request a nominations from federally recognized tribes, uh, from Alaska Native corporations from tribal chartered organizations and democratically elected organizations. And we're also able to solicit nominations from national and regional organizations with subject matter expertise and food and agriculture. And we're trying to read that as broadly as we can to include really important community-based organizations like community development financial institutions in Indian country and colleges and universities. Okay. All right. And um, what, what kind of policies uh, or, or programs in the past would the advisory group uh, would, have, would have been helpful um, with moving forward? So I can speak to what this tribal advisory committee's predecessor, the Council for Native American Farming and Ranching, provided recommendations on. And they had wide-ranging recommendations that really touched on a multitude of USDA programs, including recent changes that we've been able to make through the U.S. Forest Service. So historically, um, where uh, herd managers have operated on trust land that was ineligible to be able to access a U.S. Forest Service grazing permit. And so the previous Council for Native American Farming and Ranching shared advice and recommendations 
to USDA on how to make that change. And USDA, under this administration, has been able to take those steps. Okay. All right. And um, you mentioned the 2018 Farm Bill, and this is something that gets reauthorized every five years. So it's about time um, for, you know, a, a 2023 Farm Bill to come out. Do, you, do, you, do we know anything about that or when that is going to be uh, decided and signed by the president? Because it's, uh, it's July, almost the end of July already. So the next farm bill is really up to Congress to decide. But where I think Congress specifically had forethought, um, when we're looking at the Tribal Advisory Committee, that most advisory committees and the federal government have a two-year lifespan before they have to be re-upped. But Congress under this committee said that this committee is permanent. So as long as we don't hear a word from Congress otherwise, this committee will keep functioning and continue to be able to provide that a much-needed recommendation to USD and how we can do better. All right. How has the um, native representation over at uh, USDA, how has that changed? I know we've had the uh, the commodity foods program or the um, food distribution program on Indian reservations, um, you know, for, for a couple decades now. But uh, uh, it, it seems like we haven't been so, uh, you know, involved in um, how it works and what kind of foods it includes. But um, how has has uh, Native representation over at USDA changed over time? So we're continuing to elevate Native voices inside and outside USDA. As we're looking at um, the commodities program or the food distribution program on Indian reservations, one of the things that we continue to hear from tribes is that they want to be able to use their own foods to feed their own people. And on the flip side, we've also heard from native food vendors like um, bison herd managers that how USDA purchases foods is too complicated and doesn't really fit how tribes and tribal members do business. And so I'm excited as well that our new bison purchase pilot is able to start thinking creatively about how we address some of those barriers. Okay. Okay, so it's a it's a pilot, and uh, that means it could you know get the green light or the red light in the future. Yes, yeah, so we are starting in ground zero. So we are really excited to be building this up, particularly with tribal involvement and based on tribal feedback in every stage of the process. Okay. So unlike our sister agencies or departments like the Department of the Interior, USK doesn't have Indian purchase preference. And so we've had to think creative in terms of um, ensuring that this new pilot is just focusing on hub zones, which all tribal lands qualify as um, for North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana. And so we're really hopeful to get as many tribal bison herd managers in the process and in the pipeline to make sure that this is a success for the future. Okay. All right, let me uh, bring in a caller right now. We have Chinupa over in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Hey, Chinupa. Hey, Wopilatunke eats heat up. To the young lady that's talking about, you know, the food sources uh, and, and, you know, really taking a great look into Indian country's well-being of serving our people. Every Friday here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, I feed uh, biscuits and gravy for our elders more on a healthy diet food. 
because using the buffalo tips, tiblets or the, the meat to cook it that way is more sensual. And then frying the potatoes. We call it blow shown poppy. Then making the biscuits, I make it out of flour and cornmeal, so we call it aghuyapi. And then the gravy that pours over both the biscuits and potatoes is called kalo uh, ichahia, okay? Many, many years ago, our people have done this as a staple. And since our, you know, four-legged brother's been driven out from us, we've been com- commercially dieting. So it kind of creates a lot of different healthy um, specimens against our, our families and our elders. So what she talked about, I'm very grave into that because if we can get more people like Chinupa to be volunteers to cook for our elders in the honorable way, hey, we can combat diabetes. And that's one of the biggest essentials that we need to do in Indian country. Back to you all. And thank you, Sean, for having me on. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Chinupa, for that. Um, uh, Josiah, we are, um, you know, hearing from somebody who maybe would benefit from this bison uh, purchase pilot in the future. Um, We're going to take a break right now uh, and we'll be back. I want to ask you a quick couple of questions about this and then uh, maybe a big change happening over at uh, USDA. coming up later this month. So uh, this is the menu on Native America Calling. It's our regular feature on indigenous food sovereignty and food news. Give us a call. What's happening in your Native community in terms of Native culinary? We're at 1-800-996-2848. Saltwater Hank brings together the roots of country music and his own Simshian roots on his new album, sung almost entirely in his native tongue. There's twangy riffs, pedal steel guitar, and his soaring baritone, all with a unique indigenous bent. We'll hear from British Columbia's Saltwater Hank on the next Native America Calling. Indian Healthcare Provider Information visit healthcare.gov slash covered Nakakulan Lugo one eight hundred three one eight two five nine six Unakai Luni Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. You're listening to The Menu on Native America, calling our regular feature on Native American food sovereignty and food stories. I'm Andy Murphy. Uh, Coming up, we're going to check in on this year's Klamath Salmon Festival. You can join us. Does your tribe celebrate a traditional food? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. But before we go to um, the West Coast, I want to bring in Josiah Griffin from uh, Washington, D.C. He's the uh, policy advisor for the USDA Office of Tribal Relations. And uh, we were just uh, talking about the ground bison purchase pilot before the break. Um, uh, Josiah, how would... 
uh, bison uh, processors take part in this program? How would how would all of this work? So that's a great question. Um, to become a qualified vendor um, for the USDA Agricultural Marketing Service, which is the arm of USDA that manages all of these purchases, including for um, the commodities program. Um, the first thing that a tribal bison vendor would need is a SAMS number. So that is a you know, recognized number for any um, government purchase or any government financing. And there are resources that are available to help support um, that and navigating that system. The second process is just to make sure that you are on the Agricultural Marketing Services Qualified Bidders list. And we have resources that are available there as well to help get involved and um, take advantage of this important opportunity as we're addressing the things that have been shared with us as, as to what are the barriers for accessing and, and selling to USDA. Okay. And I've been hearing about uh, one of the barriers being uh, processing um, uh, animals for um you know, purchase for either the local community or for like a USDA program like this before. Is the USDA also, you know, does it also have like opportunities or, or um, you know, help for uh, tribes when it comes to that processing side of things? Yes. Yeah, so one of the barriers, as you've shared, that we've also heard from Indian country is that our federal inspectors aren't everywhere. And sometimes it's just a little difficult to get the bison to a federally inspected facility. So for this proof of concept purchase pilot, um, we are actually going to be taking bison that's either state inspected or federally inspected as long as there continues to be uh, microbial testing. Um, one of the other elements that we heard is that USDA, we just, we purchase too much because we're selling and, and we're, we're distributing the food to too many people. And so for this pilot, and we've also really tried to think creatively there. And so um, vendors would only need to be able to submit a bid to USDA to identify how many of 1.5 to 2 pound quantity packages or chubs um, that they would be able to provide. And we'd be asking them to deliver it straight to the tribe that's administering the food distribution program location. All right. And uh, where can people apply for or find more information about this or the uh, Tribal Advisory Committee? So please feel free to give us a call on our main line. It's 202-205-2249. Again, for the Office of Tribal Relations, that's 202-205-2249. All right, and uh, one last question before we let you go there. Um, th there's uh, going to be a change also at uh, USDA at the, um, uh, you know, at a, at a level where we saw uh, Janie Hip uh, for the last couple years. Uh, can you tell us about um, uh, Janie and, and uh, w what's going to happen? I think she's, uh, she's Chickasaw, right? Yes, that's correct. Mm. I'd like to first say our resounding thanks um, to Janie Hip, who served as general counsel at USDA, and wish her best as she's starting to engage in her next chapter. Um, for those of you who might know Janie or know about Janie, she's really been a trailblazer for across Indian country, and she's served as the first Indigenous woman to step into the role of general counsel, starting at, 
and USDA at 2021. And she's also been a key advisor through that role um, to the secretary for many initiatives across USDA during this administration. So her calculate works, I mean, her, her contributions have really been incalculable and she'll be missed. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. She's a major player in uh, this whole food sovereignty movement. Um, thank you again to, um, thank you again, Josiah, for joining us here today on The Menu. Um, I'd like to go over to our other guest we have with us from Raleigh, North Carolina. We have Allison Vick. She's the chef and owner of the Little Boo Bakehouse and Little Boo Macaron. Uh, she's Lumpy. Welcome to the menu, Allison. Hi, thank you. Hi. So uh, the Little Blue Bakehouse has been open for almost a year. Uh, tell us about this bakery. Tell us uh, what your specialty is there. Yeah, so um, we opened Little Blue Bakehouse, my husband and myself, um, just under a year ago. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary at the end of August. Um we opened it as it's like a 3,000 square foot spot, and the front 1,000 square feet is a coffee shop. You walk in, it just looks like a normal cafe seating. Um, looks like a bakery. There's display cases with all kinds of baked goods and a full a full coffee spread. But the back two thirds, the back 2,000 feet, is a commissary kitchen that houses five different members of our bakehouse, and these are. Um, five different small businesses that operate out of the kitchen. Um, we all share the same like equipment, but we have our all have our own uh, workspaces, um, have our own dry racks, our own tables, and we all make individually different products. And the whole purpose of the bakehouse when we created it is to provide a baker specific commercial kitchen, which doesn't exist in our area. All commercial kitchens are sort of for any kind of food based product, but a lot of them are geared towards food trucks and caterers, um, and they are massive operations, like 100 different food-based businesses all in one place. So it's a lot of um, fighting for oven space and fighting for fridge space. Um, so we wanted to do something on a smaller scale, and that was just related towards sweets businesses because we all fall under the Department of Agriculture in the state of North Carolina. We all use similar products, so it's a lot easier to share when we're missing certain ingredients. Um, and we're the first kitchen, at least in our area, that has a retail aspect. So in this way, the bakers that operate out of our kitchen can retail their items up front in our coffee shop and gather retail sales information, essentially try their hand at a retail-based business um, without having to open their own brick and mortar. Um, and so we essentially gather all their sales info. They can use that later on if they decide they want to open their own brick and mortar. They've got all that financial information in their pocket to bring to investors or show their proof of concept. Um, it's just kind of like a stepping stone from people who have a home-based business or based out of another commercial kitchen and, and having your own space. We're trying to be like a, a helping spot for these businesses to grow and find some direction. Yeah. Well, uh, why would a, a food entrepreneur um, need to use a kitchen like this? Yeah, 
So in the state of North Carolina, at least, because every state has different what they call like cottage industry laws or food-based laws, um, in the state of North Carolina, your home can be um, a certified kitchen by the Department of Agriculture, but they have to come in, check it out. It has to be super sterile. You have to have certain type of ham stinks and wash stinks and can't have any pets in the area. Um, and that excludes a lot of people from being able to operate legally out of their homes. And so you do have to have a commercial kitchen or you have to operate out of a commissary kitchen if, like, let's say you have a dog in your house or you just don't want to go through the additional expense of outfitting your kitchen to be at the Department of Agriculture standards. Um, if you want to go into a place that just already has that, so it's easy for you to get inspected. Um, it already has a refrigerator and freezer space that's usually kind of the benefit of working out of a commercial kitchen um and uh but like i said most commercial kitchens in the area it's just the kitchen itself so then you have to seek out wholesale clients or you have to participate in lots of pop-up markets in order to obtain retail sales and when you do wholesale you lose 30 to 35 percent of the retail value of your product so while it's a great way to get your name out there and we highly encourage it for everybody and i encourage any small businesses that are growing to try it out you know approach coffee shops try to get your product in there it does um financially impact your return so we were hoping with with our concept you know you get to keep a little bit more of of your the retail value of the goods that you're producing right right and uh what do you get out of uh, helping other bakers um other than uh this uh sense of camaraderie or um having a couple of their products uh up on the counter there at the bakehouse yeah well it's really cool because um it gives us an opportunity to do a lot of cross-marketing um, and cross-collaboration. So a lot of us will like partner with each other to provide the cookies for the ice cream sandwiches that our ice cream maker is making. Or if I have leftover products, sometimes I'll give it to one of the other bakers and they'll put it inside of a cookie so it'll be like a macaron stuffed cookie or turn it into some kind of brownie. I mean, it's like there's a lot of ways for us to reduce our food waste. There's a lot of ways for us to collaborate together and come up with new concepts and kind of kick kick ideas off of each other. Um, and then there's a lot of ways to cross market because as small businesses, we're, you know, we're having to do all of the social media and marketing ourselves. And that is a whole other job in and of itself. So if you have somebody who's out there helping tag you in posts and saying, hey, Little Blue Macaron made the cookies for this ice cream sandwich, um, it helps your business reach a wider market. It helps you grow. It helps you get followers. People know about you. You get a little more name recognition. So it's sort of a bit of a benefit to everybody. But um, like personally, when I started Little Blue Macaron in 2018, um, you know, I went through figuring out how to start up a small business in the state of North Carolina just by you know, call, constantly calling the Secretary of State's office and the Department of um, Revenue, trying to make sure I have everything right. And it would kind of like figure it out as you go along. And I was doing it all by myself. And so since I did that, I've helped some other small businesses in the mentorship process of like, what are some tips and tricks for growth? What um, what are some markets I should be looking at, uh, et cetera? And it's just kind of, this is the ultimate way to provide some mentorship, not just from myself, but from the other businesses here, because we're all on different levels of um, 
where our business growth is, our personal business growth, and we're all shooting for different things. So it really helps to have us all under one umbrella because we can talk, constantly talk to each other about like, hey, why why is this not selling so well? What do you think about this flavor profile? And and get a lot of immediate feedback. Right. Uh, so let's let's go back a little bit. How how did you get started in food? Yeah, um, I always loved I always loved baking. Um, and after college, I went to college for textiles uh, and Spanish. And um, I graduated in 2010, and the textile industry was still totally reeling from. Did we uh, lose Allison there? Been to Austin, Texas, um, and did that for three years. And I, I loved my job, but I was not passionate about it. I was passionate about making pastries and, and you know, making things for friends on the side. And I just kind of like, I felt like it wasn't just a hobby. And I had a good friend really push me into taking a pastry apprenticeship position um gosh I want to say maybe it was like 2014 when I quit my um my corporate job and then took this midnight to 8 a.m graveyard shift working working as a pastry cook trying to learn as much as I could and I I worked in Austin for four years kind of through pastry cook pastry sue and then ultimately was um, an executive pastry chef at a restaurant that was uh, I mean it was just like the ideal you're working with people who you feel like are your family and you have lots of respect and a lot of flexibility. It was, it was just wonderful. Um, but I, when my son was born in 2018 and we moved back home to North Carolina, where my husband and I are both from, we really needed to be near all of our family who all live here. Um, I knew I didn't want to go back into the restaurant world because it is very, it's very fast paced. It's very, um, if you don't find the right place, it, Sometimes it can be kind of toxic, um, although fortunately I see that changing a lot in the industry these days, but but you just never know. So I didn't want to go back into the restaurant industry, and I was passionate about making macarons. So I was very privileged that while my husband went back to, to work that I was able to start a small business and try to get it off the ground. Um, and I just was making macarons for three and a half years before we we were able to get Little Blue Bake House up and running. Uh, why macarons? I don't know. It's just, I, so my mentor, when I started um, in the pastry world, the best piece of advice she gave me was um, make things at home that we're not doing here in the kitchen. Um, anything that you're interested in, just constantly work on it. Work outside of the kitchen on the stuff you're passionate about. So one day I just decided to make macarons because we were not doing that in-house. Um, and I thought my first batch was so awesome. I was like, God, these are great. And I mean, I look back now and they're <laughs> they're wild. They look like fluffy hamburgers. They look terrible. They were <laughs> they look terrible, but I thought they were great. Um, and I just kept trying and trying and making them. And then I realized, oh, I can make these into shapes or I can pipe designs in them or I can hand paint them. And so then I started doing them for friends, for baby showers and for events and things. Um, and then I thought, you know, if, if I feel like I'm not good at it and I really love it that much, then I should try to make a career out of it, which is um, what I did. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's where, uh, I guess, uh, Little Blue Macron came from, and then that evolved into Little Blue Bakehouse. I, I will never get tired of listening to these um, you know, food business stories and how they came about. Um, but uh, what advice would you give to someone like myself who's made, you know, you know, what you said, fluffy hamburger patties <laughs> the first, second time around. What, what advice would you give to somebody who is uh, interested in maybe trying to make uh, macarons? Absolutely. Okay, don't give up because <laughs> okay. the first several batches, the first several batches that you make, you may be one of those lucky few who gets it, nails it on the first try, and they come out absolutely gorgeous. Um, that probably won't happen with batches two, three, and four, or like most people, they come out totally wonky looking the first time. I bet they will be texturally perfect and taste really awesome. I've noticed regardless of how wonky they come out when they look, usually as long as you bake them long enough, they taste really great and texturally they're spot on. They just look really weird. So keep trying because you can nail down you'll start getting it after so many tries, you start realizing how the batter feels in your hand, mm -hmm. how you can manipulate it and control it. And you get start developing a little bit more control over what they call the macronage, the batter itself. Got um, it. All right, we'll be back right after this break. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. Hey, you have it tuned to The Menu on Native America calling our regular feature show on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy, and we're speaking with a pastry chef right now, and we'll be turning our focus over to the Yurok tribe. Even though salmon runs have been too low to have salmon at their annual uh, salmon festival, they have something to be hopeful for. There's still time to call in, join our conversation. How does your tribe celebrate food? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, going back to Raleigh, North Carolina with Allison Vick. Uh, chef and owner of Little Blue Bakehouse. We were just um, uh, talking about how it takes persistence to make a really good macaron. Um, and I wanted to uh, shift over and, and, and talk about uh, uh, business. What What is the difference between, um, you know, restaurant business and, and, you know, doing that, you know, making breakfast, lunch, or dinner, like the savory stuff, compared to, uh, you know, a pastry business, a sweets business? Yeah, so we, we have a lot earlier hours, of course, um, because people hit the ground running in the morning. They want coffee. They want treats with their coffee. So, so we work earlier hours, but that is great for me because I'm a morning person. So I love it. I'd rather get up early, go to work early, and kind of have the rest of the day to hang with my kids or do whatever else I need to do. Um, but also, you know, we're not doing, we have a lot of, there's a lot of creativity in the industry regardless, but we have a little bit of creativity in that, that 
what we're putting out into our cases and what we're putting out into the shop, you know, that's, that's how it comes. We aren't making stuff to order. So it's not like, Oh, take this off or I don't like pistachio. It's Hey, what you, what you see is what's here and it's what you get. And we like to use, of course, like a ton of restaurants, we like to use really seasonal stuff to make um, our jams or caramels. We're using as much local products from local farms, from local vendors as, as much as we humanly can. So, so you'll see a lot of seasonal stuff, which, you know, you do see in the restaurant industry as well, but that's, that's a big part of our creativity. And as we put it out is, is how it comes that we don't have to deal with the pressure of somebody ringing in tickets with all kinds of alterations and changes to the product that you intended to put out there. All right. And um, t tell me about um, Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, and um, what the maybe, you know, indigenous population is like there. Do you guys have a, yeah. a native clientele? Yeah, so I'm I'm honestly always surprised. Um, you know, it's a smaller world than I think it is. Raleigh, Raleigh's a little bit removed from um, the area where Lumbees essentially originate our tribal lands, more or less. Pembroke, uh, North Carolina, is where all my dad's family's from. My dad is there still. He's a a teacher um, at a local high school there, so he's stayed he stayed in the area. But we were born and raised in my sister and I were born and raised in Raleigh, um, so it's a little bit removed, like an hour and a half from where my dad currently is now. So I kind of, when we moved back to North Carolina, my husband and I um, in 2018, I I didn't really know what to expect. We had been gone for seven years. I didn't know how Raleigh was changing. I didn't know if it was the same sort of demographic that it was when I was growing up. But since I've opened Little Blue Bakehouse, I just feel like I, you know, I'm meeting Lumbies left and right because we, you know, we are a really rather large tribe. And so people have expanded into the Triangle area where Raleigh's located. And I've joined the um, Triangle Native American Society, which has really helped connect me to people who are living in the Raleigh-Durham, the Triangle area, um, and are, you know, constantly coming in and constantly checking up on each other. We have monthly meetups and all kinds of events that we participate in as well. So so it's been kind of cool staying connected to the indigenous community that way um, and like forming new relationships. Um, so like I said, I've been kind of surprised there's more people than I originally thought um, would be coming through. And and yeah, we're just hoping it keeps expanding and there's a lot more more influence. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for telling us about your business there. That's a Little Blue Bakehouse in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I'd like to go over to the West Coast now. Um, joining us from the Sacramento area in California is uh, Allison McCovey. She's the Klamath Salmon Festival MC and Deputy Executive Director of NER. Uh, Nergiol, the the tribe's health and human services division. She's Yurok. Uh, welcome to the menu, Allison. To be here to talk about our salmon festival. Yeah. So, uh, no salmon this year. Uh, how did that uh, decision get made? Well, we have our biologists that work on the river all year round, um, watching and monitoring our salmon. And for the last eight 
salmon runs, we have only reached our minimal run once. So it has been an ongoing struggle for for our people, and, and salmon is really the lifeline of our culture. Um, the decline has a lot to do with the with the dams, and we're so looking forward to that. That's that is our theme of our celebration this year, the Salmon Festival, is the removal of the dams and the healing of our river. So, um, so yeah, it was a hard decision for the for the council to come to, but. The minimum run prediction would be around 41,000 salmon, and they predict for this year it won't even be 24,000. So we don't want to um, damage it further. Okay. All right. So uh, for for uh, folks who might not uh, understand what a what a salmon run is, uh, what is a salmon run? Well, our, our salmon runs up and up and down our river. Um, <clears throat> there's different. I'm certainly not the expert, but there's different times of year where where they're going going through our area, um, and uh, we've had a. It's been a the damage to our salmon has been a combination of factors, not just the dam, but habitat loss and excessive water diversions, the disease outbreaks because they've. Um, held back so much of our water, the water actually warms and that, that creates a lot of um, algae and disease. Um, there's fish passage barriers and um, damage caused by past logging and mining operations. So the dams, the dams are certainly a huge part um, to moving to repair that, but we still have other factors we're constantly working on as well. All right. And the tribe has been, um, you know, fighting to remove these dams for a long time. I mean, what, what does it mean now that, uh, uh, that, you know, the decision was made, I think, last year in November to uh, get rid of, uh, you know, at least four of the dams on the Klamath River? We've been planning and moving towards this for the last 20 years, but it really is so very exciting to be able to be at this point. The first dam is going to come down here by September, and then the other three will be down by December of 24. It's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. Like I said, there are other factors that affect our fish, but this is certainly one of the um, one of the more damaging um, factors to our fish. So it's just. I can hardly explain how exciting it is as a Yurok person to finally be here at this point. There's been so much, you know, literal blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into the removal of these dams, of our people coming together and getting to the, getting to Klamath Falls and protesting and traveling together. And I just think that our ancestors would be really happy. I I wish that my grandparents and my dad were still alive and, mm. and could be here with us to celebrate. But it definitely is a great feeling. You know, like we were talking about the the um, not having salmon this year. This isn't our first year of choosing not to have salmon due to the, the such a low run. It, it's It's kind of bittersweet. We're, we've invited more food trucks to come to our salmon festival, mm-hmm. so everyone will definitely be fed. And it's, of course, it's sad because our salmon festival is 
obviously it's a time to celebrate our salmon and share it with with our outer community and um, people love to come and eat our salmon cooked the traditional way on redwood sticks over an open fire and we love sharing that part of our culture so it's sad that we won't have our main component but it's also a time to celebrate that we have reached this huge milestone and we're hoping that you know it won't take that long to repair that 400 miles of salmon spawning habitat that's been affected by the dams. Right. And so what else is going to be happening at uh, the festival? If there's so no salmon? Have, yeah, Nepuli is the um, name of, it's the Yurok word for salmon. We have a Nepuli fun run put on by our tribal court. That's always um, a great um, event. They have that going on in the, um, in the morning. We have an ongoing softball tournament that everybody looks forward to. We start off with a parade at 10 o'clock and throughout the day we'll have cultural demonstrations. We'll have a traditional stick game tournament. Um, There's a kids area that has the big slides and we'll have a petting zoo and all kinds of fun things for the kids. Um, This year we will be hosting the California Indian Basket Weavers Association and they'll be doing demonstration on cooking acorns and braiding bear grass. Oh, nice. And, And uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one of, one thing that we're really excited for that we started last year through our environmental food sovereignty division. Um, Our reservation is a food desert and we do have a food sovereignty um, division that is helping the community sustain um, more food sources. Last year, they put on our first Yurok Chopped competition. And it's a 45 minute competition that um, people cook salmon. So everybody loved it last year. Last year, our winner was Geneva Shaw. And everyone had the community had such a great time. It's really a lot of hype for this year. So we're looking forward to that as well. All right. So it's like uh, uh, the show Chopped. It's like a competition cooking show or cooking event. Okay. Yes, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, lucky for for the judges there. Um, what uh, you know, go, going back to the Klamath River and uh, the dams coming down. I mean, the reason to celebrate this year. Uh, what does that look like? Um, you know, you mentioned the uh, first dam is going to be coming down. Um, you know, at the end of the summer here. I mean, w- what does that look like, like on the ground? Because I think. I think some of us maybe imagine like a just a rush of water down the valley like they're just gonna you know blow up the dam and then you know everybody has to get out of the way like what is it gonna look like yeah that's how I see it in my head yeah. <laughs> they're all just gonna explode like a big firework uh. <clears throat> excuse me they they have been um Working towards that for quite some time. I know they've been, um, we've had crews out on the river gathering seeds to help repair habitat habitat as the water um, is removed. Um, We're hiring and training people to work on on the dam removal. Um, Again, I'm not so much of an expert, but I know that they do dismantle them in different ways. Some are more of a a blown up kind of um, thing and others come down piece by piece. Piece by piece. 
So, um, like I said, they've wrote, they've been preparing for that for some time, and we have um, a lot of highly trained um, specialists that are are ready to go for it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, and uh, when the salmon, um, you know, when salmon runs are good again, and uh, you know, next year, maybe the year after that, we might, uh, you guys might be seeing salmon again on the menu at the festival. Um, what are some some other ways uh, folks are preparing salmon out there? You just mentioned uh, on redwood sticks along a fire. What other ways? There certainly are. There certainly are different ways to prepare salmon. I know a lot of families bake their salmon. I know I like to, when I get a salmon, um, my girls, it's their favorite meal, will bake the whole salmon. And um, I like to put Meyer lemon and sweet onions and just let salt and pepper, let that bake in. The salmon has such great natural flavor. Um, for it and uh, we eat everything the head and when serving at the salmon festival it's kind of funny because the nape of the salmon is is many people's favorite part it's fatty and it's and it's juicy and it just has a lot of flavor but it doesn't look that attractive mm. and I, I that there was a, a youth who said oh i don't want that piece and i was saying "Ooh, everybody always wants the nape we usually fight over who gets the nape of the of the salmon yeah like what what part of the salmon is that what it's it's the the nape it's like the neck part it's right okay. around the head and so okay. it's just this really luscious piece of of salmon that um just has a lot of flavor salmon does have a lot of flavor on its own and then some people like to fry fry their salmon have it with eggs in the morning and potatoes and mm-hmm. or of course one of our our staples is to um to smoke our salmon, um, put it in, in strips in the smokehouse and, and then often can it after that. And a lot of people like to can it just um, raw as well. Nice. All right. All of us are hungry right now. Uh, thank you so much for letting us know about uh, the Salmon Festival this year over in Yurok Country in California. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to our guests we had on. Uh, that was um, Allison uh, McCovey over there in California. We also had Allison Vick in uh, North Carolina and then Josiah Griffith over at USDA in Washington. Uh, joining us. Uh, join us tomorrow uh, for a taste of some music by indigenous artists. This is the menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. SBA wants to see you win. They want to see you grow. They have been so helpful and so resourceful. Thanks to the SBA, my business is thriving today. Make sure you get in touch with SBA and you will definitely be on your way to a winning path. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Huaka. Yukakayakanik ayokanagalangurunik upingakshainalakhtud. Healthcare.gov/coverage/1800-318-2596. 
the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.